Well, happy March 31st. It's hard to believe that, isn't it? Hey, I wanted to give you a little update on where we are with the building purchase. We announced last week that we had uh, placed an offer that had been accepted on property up on 26th Northeast. And um, we had our inspection on, what day was that, Thursday? And um, a lot of the things we expected that they would find, they found, and um, a few other things. So um, we, uh, we know that we're going to need to do some remodeling to do some work on that building. <clears throat> I just want to let you know there's going to be a lot of opportunity uh, for all of us to participate in that. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll get the, actually get the written report tomorrow. Uh, I got a verbal report on Thursday at the end of the day from the inspector. There's a lot of the things that we expected and, and uh, a few, few other smaller things that uh, we will address. Well, we are uh, taking a, a little detour from our, our study in Romans. I told you we would take a break for Easter. We're going to do that. Um, our, ser- our Easter series is titled A Walk with Christ to the Cross. And we're going we're to take uh, four moments in the final hours of Jesus uh, over these next weeks. Four poignant moments. There, you know, and, and, and the events of those last hours, if you know the story, uh, Things were happening at a rapid pace and a bewildering pace. And, and there's so much in the story. And so I would encourage you during this month to, to read through the story of Jesus' passion um, and, and just rehearse the details uh, of those events that led up to and through the crucifixion to the resurrection and beyond. Um, we can't cover all of that in the time we have, but we're going to look at four moments. Today, the last Passover. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be looking at... Uh, what are we looking at next week? Evan, where'd he go? Anyway, there's four moments. Gethsemane next week, that's what it is. And then the trial. And then on Easter, we'll be looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection. So uh, I hope that you'll invite some friends to be a part of this um, And uh, I think it's going to be an exciting series. Uh, At least I hope it will be. Well, let's let's just dive in. You know, so we're on the last Passover today. If you know the story of the Gospels, you know that there was a moment when Jesus began to prepare his disciples for what was to come. And there are four really distinct moments in, in that preparation that, that stand out because Jesus on, on four different occasions told his disciples what was going to happen when they arrived in Jerusalem. And so let me just share those with you. Matthew sixteen twenty one is the first one. And Matthew says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. In Matthew 17, 22 to 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed, not surprisingly. Matthew 20, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, another They're nearing the city. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are. 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew 26, he said to his disciples, two days before Passover, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In each of those successive statements, Jesus is preparing his disciples for coming events. And as Matthew reveals, this, these predictions, these prophecies were understandably distressing to the disciples. So that as we come to the last Passover, we see Jesus in the Passover meal taking them even deeper as he prepares them for what the next hours will bring. For the Hebrews, each day began and ended at sunset. So as they ate their evening meal on any given day, the new day was beginning. We think of the day starting in the morning when the sun rises. For the Jews, it was when the sun set. On the evening of the day then that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and tried and sentenced to death by crucifixion, he celebrated Passover with his disciples. It would be his last Passover with them. The feast of Passover commemorated the tenth and final plague on Egypt as God acted to deliver the nation of Israel from slavery and lead them to the land of promise the land that had been promised to Abraham and his descendants forever. Passover, in the sense, is an Ebenezer. It's a memorial marker. God commanded Moses and Aaron that that Passover should be observed by the Israelites as a perpetual ordinance so that they would always remember and never forget God's miraculous deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Because God was determined on that occasion, to deliver Israel from Egypt. And because the Pharaoh of Egypt was equally determined that the Israelites would not be set free, God chose to send ten successive plagues against Egypt. And the tenth plague is remembered as the plague of the death of the firstborn. God sent an angel of death to pass through the entire land of Egypt, and in a single night, In nearly every home in Egypt, the firstborn of both man and animal died, even in the palaces of Egypt. In the morning when their deaths were discovered, there was weeping and there was wailing in every home, in every village, every town, every city. There was no home that was not visited by death with the exception of God's people, Israel. Why were their houses left untouched? Well, sometime before, God had commanded that each head of household, each father, each man was to take from his flocks an unblemished lamb for his whole family. And then on the prescribed day, they were to do four things. Each head of household was to slaughter the lamb Then they were to take some of the blood and paint it on the 
sides and the tops of the door frames. And the angel, well then they were to roast the lamb. I'm getting ahead of myself. They were to roast the lamb over fire and then the whole family was to go into the house and they were to eat the entire lamb that evening. Well, that night, when the angel of death passed through Egypt, whenever the angel saw a house with the blood on the tops and sides of the door frames, the angel would pass over that house and its residents would be unharmed, hence the name Passover. But in every house where the blood was not applied, the firstborn of both man and animal died. Now I imagine that it's possible, uh, perhaps even probable, that some of the Israelites didn't believe God, didn't listen to Moses and his brother Aaron, didn't apply the blood of the lamb to the doors of their houses. And in those homes, someone died. See, when the angel of death passed over all Egypt, only those were spared who put their faith in a substitutionary sacrifice. Because the unblemished lamb was slain, put to death, those in whose homes the blood was applied and who had taken the lamb into themselves were not slain. The lamb died in their place as their substitute. And the only way to escape death was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. It's important that we understand that and to understand it in that way. For the Jews, the observance of Passover, like baptism and communion for the Christian, can be understood as ritual drama. Maybe you've never heard that term. Think about that with me for just a moment. Ritual drama. Ritual is something that you do, whether religious or mundane, that you do repeatedly. Drama is a play. It's a, it's a, a reenactment. Passover, baptism, and communion each remember God's act of deliverance by ritually repeatedly reenacting them. God commanded is that Israel observe the Seder, the Passover meal, as a perpetual ordinance. So year after year after year after year, for thousands of years, the Jews have celebrated Passover. Similarly, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, commanded the church to remember him by observing the Lord's Supper, by symbolically taking his body and his blood into themselves. Jesus also commanded that every believer be baptized by immersion in water, a ritual drama, an identification with Christ by means of a symbolic reenactment of his death and his burial and his resurrection. With that in mind, let's stand and read our scripture for this morning. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, 
When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one of they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. You may be seated. There are clearly a a number of things happening very quickly in the gospel writer's accounts of Jesus' last Passover with his disciples and the events surrounding it. Uh, There's the disciples' preparations for the Passover, with Jesus commanding them to find a man carrying a jar of water to a furnished room where they would eat the meal. Um, There's the disclosure that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, would betray Jesus uh, to the Jews for 30 pieces of silver. John adds that Jesus washed the disciples' feet that evening, and and of course, there's the Passover meal itself and the singing of a hymn. A hymn excuse me, a singing of a hymn. Each of those is worthy of examination. There's, there's so much to learn from each one. Well, this morning, I want to simply focus your attention on the Passover meal itself, at least those parts of it on which Mark and the other gospel writers focus and what Jesus had to say about it. I don't have time to explain the entire Seder meal, but let's pick it up where the gospel writers pick it up. With Jesus taking bread and then taking a cup. You might know that uh, in the Passover meal there are four cups of wine that are drunk, symbolizing four promises that God made to the Israelites. Those four promises are rescue from Egypt, Liberation from slavery, redemption by God's power, and a renewed relationship with him. All four of those promises are found in just two verses in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. This is God speaking to Moses. Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. There's rescue from Egypt. I will free you from being slaves to them. 
There's liberation from slavery. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. There's redemption by the the mighty power of God. And finally, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And there's a renewed relationship. Then you will know, God says, that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And Jesus and each of the disciples were very, very Jewish. We sometimes forget how Jewish they really were. But understand that from childhood, from infancy, they had year after year after year in their homes observed the Passover. In their villages, they had observed the Passover. They knew it as well as you know your holiday traditions, and better. They knew it and understood it in depth. That story was their story. But on this last Passover, with his disciples, Jesus departed from the script by reinterpreting the symbolism of the bread and the cup to speak of himself. Beginning of verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And you have to think, at that moment they're saying, what? That's not how it goes, Jesus. What? And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. What? What? Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What? There goes Jesus again, saying crazy things. What's he talking about? Well, regarding the bread, he said, take it. This is my body. Take it. This is my body. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Jesus would have taken the bread. He would have lifted it up. And giving thanks, he would have said something like, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. In the traditional meal, the one who was leading it would have described the bread as the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. There's the script. But Jesus shows his disciples the bread, and instead he says, this is my body. What? What did he mean? Jesus seemed to be saying, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. I'm the prophet, like Moses, who was prophesied. 
I have come to lead you out of the ultimate slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to the fear of death. And when he took the cup, he said, this is my blood of the covenant. What? What? See, the cup that Jesus picked up at this point in the meal was the third cup, the cup of redemption. They came at a point when the meal was almost completely eaten. And Jesus would have taken the cup and he would have lifted up the cup and he would have said, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And again, the disciples had to have been astonished as Jesus reinterpreted the wine in the third cup as symbolizing his own blood that he was about to shed on a cross. And he says two things about this cup of his blood. First, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Luke has Jesus saying this slightly differently. He says, Luke has Jesus saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It means the same thing, but maybe a little more clear. We have to ask then, what covenant was Jesus describing? Well, 600 years before Christ, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah about a new covenant that, that he would make with his people. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Because the people did not, could not, would not, keep their side of the covenant that God made with them through Moses on Mount Sinai. And because of his great love and his faithfulness to his own word, God promised a new deal, a new agreement, a new covenant. And instead of requiring conformity to an external law, God, by his Holy Spirit, would write his law on minds and hearts. He would accept them and adopt them as his own people. He would draw each of them into a personal relationship with himself. 
And because he knew that even then they could never keep the law, even the one that was written on their hearts internally, he would forgive their sin and never count their failures against them. And this is God's offer to you and me through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, it's my blood that ratified this. Jesus said his blood is poured out for many. Matthew's gospel adds the phrase, for the forgiveness of sins. And the apostle John wrote that the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us, keeps on cleansing us, keeps on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. The blood that Jesus shed at the cross is poured out for the sins of many, for the forgiveness of sins, and it runs down to you today. It runs down to me today. The blood of Jesus will never lose its power. It's as powerful today as it was the day that he shed it at the the cross over 2,000 years ago. In ancient times, covenants were solemnly ratified with a blood sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, it's my blood that makes all this possible. It's my blood that binds me to the covenant. It's my blood that ratifies it because I'm going to shed my blood and die for you as your substitute, bearing your sins at the cross. Full forgiveness is possible Because as you trust in what I'm about to do for you, God will never again count your sin against you. Jesus went on in verse 25, it's recorded that that he said, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What? What? What's he saying? It's not just a prediction. It's a promise. It's an oath. Again, Matthew's version is instructive. He has Jesus saying, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, with you in my Father's kingdom. See, the oath that Jesus is taking here says, I'm going to personally seat you at the feast of the king. I'm going to be the one that's there with you at the feast of the king. Jesus often compared the kingdom of God to sitting at a big feast. You might say Jesus often compared the kingdom of God to a party, to a celebration. In Matthew 8, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. In John 6, Jesus is recorded as having, saying, having said, this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have, shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. This is the promise that Jesus is making when he says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you 
in the kingdom of heaven. By holding up the bread and the cup saying, this is my body, this is my blood, Jesus is saying all of the previous Passover lambs, all of the earlier sacrifices, thousands upon millions, were pointing at last to me. And just as that first Passover was observed the night before God redeemed the Israelites from slavery through the blood of the lambs, this Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now, I don't think that the Passover meal was a vegetarian meal. Um, I'm not sure they were worried about being gluten-free. But I think it's interesting that there's not mention of a lamb at this Passover meal. There probably was one. But just think of this. Is it possible? Is it possible that they would have celebrated Passover without a lamb? Is it possible that there was no lamb on the table because the Lamb of God was at the table? At the very start of Jesus' earthly ministry, John the Baptist caught sight of him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Isaiah the prophet wrote about Messiah, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who are the transgressors? You and I. So when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, he means I'm the one to whom both Isaiah and John were pointing. I'm the one they described. I'm the Lamb of God. To which all the previous ones were pointing, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate, you you might call it whatever you like. Some people call it communion. Some people call it the Lord's table. Some people call it the Eucharist. Whatever you call it, The Lord's Supper is a repeated reminder of the sacrificial, substitutionary love of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserved. At the cross, Jesus, Messiah Jesus, bore our sins, the word tells us, in his own body. And so the sin, the guilt, The shame, the brokenness of everyone who has ever lived or will ever live was laid on him. And he drank the cup of wrath for us. So Jesus said of the bread and the cup, do this. Keep on doing this.
in remembrance of me. On the night before that first Passover in Egypt, the blood of the lamb had to be painted on the doorposts and on the frame of the house. But the lamb also had to be eaten. They had to take the lamb into themselves. They had to put the lamb to death. They had to apply the blood. And then they had to take the lamb into themselves. They had to, as it were, ingest it. Mark records in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. The bread and the wine had to be taken. So understand this morning that what Christ offers has to be received. God through Christ is holding salvation out to you, forgiveness of sins out to you, never holding your sin against you again. He's holding that gift out to you. But you have to receive it. You have to reach out and receive it. The Lord's Supper, communion then, is a way of symbolically, symbolically taking in the death of Christ for yourself and all of its benefits and receiving it personally. Now understand, we neither believe nor teach here at LifePoint that the bread literally becomes the physical body of Christ when you eat it, or that the grape juice literally becomes the blood of Christ when you drink it. Neither do we believe or teach that the repeated receiving of the communion elements is necessary to maintain your relationship with God. What we believe is that the sacrifice of Christ that was offered was the full and final payment for all of our sin. That his blood once offered and received keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So the Lord's Supper, communion, Lord's table, Eucharist, whichever again you label you choose to put on it is only meaningful to those whom God has called into relationship with Jesus Christ and who have transferred their trust from religion and good works and, and uh, morality to Christ and what he accomplished at the cross. And that's why we can say that simply participating in the Lord's Supper doesn't secure our salvation or ensure it. But the Lord's Supper points to a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We receive it individually. Ritual drama. Reminder that we receive what God offers through Christ individually. And through Christ, we individually are reconciled to God. Lord's Supper also points to a family relationship. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body. But we all share the one loaf. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're doing it alongside brothers and sisters. You're doing it with family. We do communion every Sunday here at LifePoint. Um, We chose to do that because Jesus put no limit on the frequency. He just said, each time you do this, remember me. pastor friend of mine said, uh, the great thing about doing communion every Sunday is that uh, people can't be crabby when they're taking communion with each other every Sunday. Because we're reminded of our own brokenness. We're reminded of our own sin. We're reminded of what God did for us in Christ. Tim Keller says that the church is a band of natural enemies who love one another for Christ's sake. True, true, true. Communion reminds us of the unifying power of the blood of Christ. The unity of the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us. But the Lord's Supper also points to an eternal relationship. It points to our future with Christ. See, the reality that the Lord's Supper symbolizes is what makes our presence at the ultimate final feast possible, the eternal one. Probably shouldn't call it the final one. That seems like it ends because it doesn't. It just goes on and on. It's not like the Golden Corral, but it will go on forever, the final feast. Jesus once said to his friend Nicodemus, This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So this morning, if you haven't transferred your trust from your ability to impress God, he's not impressed, by the way, just so you know. If you haven't transferred your trust from your ability to please God, your ability to keep the law of God, to keep the law of your own conscience, if you haven't transferred that to Christ, I urge you to do that. I urge you to do it today. You're not promised tomorrow. Do it today. If you're a believer in Christ, never ever allow yourself to become disconnected from the gospel. Never allow yourself to think, well, that's just the simple stuff. The gospel is everything. What Christ accomplished at the cross is everything. It's central to the entire life of discipleship. This is my body. Take it and eat it. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it, all of you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your mercy, your incredible love, your scandalous grace. Lord, you offer us everything. We offer you nothing. You offer us righteousness. We, we offer you brokenness. And 
and shame. Lord, we have nothing to offer you. And yet you love us. And yet you continue to love us. And Lord, we fail you and we fail you and we fail you and we fail you. And your blood keeps on cleansing us as we look to you. Lord, thank you for that confidence. Thank you for that hope. Lord, help us not to miss our moment. Help us not to miss your grace, but to receive it, to take it into ourselves, to put our full trust in it. In Jesus' name, amen.